The fourth World Scout Jamboree was by all accounts a massive success. With more than 20,000 Boy Scouts from 46 countries in attendance, the event attracted over 300,000 people to Godolo, Hungary to see this international gathering of trustworthy, loyal, helpful young lads. One attendee reported it was most noticeable that the whole Hungarian nation had cooperated to make the event a success, and another that the Hungarians had beaten us at our own game while paying the biggest compliment ever paid to the Boy Scout movement anywhere in the world. Godolo shall be an inscribed place in the history of scouting for being the first district in the world to turn out in full force to pay homage to the greatest movement of youth for peace in the world. Map of the event's campgrounds makes it look like Disney World, or at least Epcot, with the encampment's own post office, ambulance station, hospital, a rail station, and a local streetcar line. Each foreign contingent was provided what was called a Hungarian cousin who could help translate, but it's said the unofficial language of the event was jamborees, consisting mostly of signs emphasized by a happy smile. The event included some extremely high-profile figures both in the world of the scouting movement but also in Hungarian politics. With two in the UK and one in Denmark, this was the second-to-last jamboree that the 75-year-old founder of the scouting movement British Lieutenant General Robert Baden-Powell would attend. Hello, you boy in the corner there. You ought to be a boy scout. You're a fine-looking fella, and I know you would make a jolly good backwoodsman by the look of you. You're ugly enough anyway. Chief Baden-Powell's tent held a central position on the grounds of the Godolo Palace, and from all descriptions, it sounds like he was practically mobbed in adoration everywhere that he went. When Baden-Powell visited the Air Scouts, gathering for the first time at this fourth jamboree, he was joined by Laszlo Almashi, the pilot, spy, Iron Cross recipient, and son of a prominent Turinist explorer on whom the novel and film The English Patient was based on. Let me tell you about winds. There is a, a whirlwind from southern Morocco, the Ajej, against which the Fellahin defend themselves with knives. Giving opening remarks alongside Chief Baden-Powell was Admiral Miklos Horthy, the regent and Axis strongman of Hungary from 1920 until his abdication in 1944. One of Hitler's chief puppets, Admiral Horthy, the shifty ex-regent of Hungary. The royal palace of Gdolo, famously beloved by Empress Sisi, was built in the 17th century, but by this time it was Horthy's summer residence. I would say, however, that the success of the Fourth World Scout Jamboree, as well as the success of the scouting movement in interwar Hungary and elsewhere, was not due to the enthusiasm and power of Horthy, nor to Baden-Powell's particular interest in the country, nor to Almashi's celebrity acclaim. The chief scout of Hungary and camp chief of the Fourth World Scout Jamboree was Count Paul Telecki, a geographer and intellectual who was not prime minister during the 1933 Jamboree, but had been 12 years prior and would be again in only six years' time. He was among the most influential interwar Hungarian Turinists and president of the Hungarian Turanian Society for much of the organization's existence. Existence. It could be said that outside of his role as a statesman, Teleki's two greatest passions in life might have been Turinism and the Hungarian and World Boy Scout movement. 
inside his role as a statesman, Teleki is sometimes portrayed as a sympathetic moderate torn between duty and honor who, his hagiographers claim, had an enduring desire to keep Hungary a non-belligerent during World War II. He resisted Germany's entry into Hungary during its invasion of Poland, threatening to blow up railways even if it came to it. He attempted to close down several fascist parties and soured Hungary's relationship with Germany by accepting hundreds of thousands of refugees from Poland. But he also passed the first explicitly anti-Semitic law in Europe after World War I, and then many, many more after that, which he claimed he did out of a personal enthusiasm. Despite some of his steps against fascist parties, the leader of Hungary's Aerocross party Ferenc Salashi received amnesty during Teleki's prime ministership, strengthening his movement. Significant deportations and forced labor of Jews occurred during his government, and he personally advocated for and published writings endorsing the politics of racial hygiene and anti-Semitism throughout his life. Count Teleki's family were Transylvanian aristocrats, and under his prime ministership, Hungary reclaimed parts of the country lost after World War I, including parts of Transylvania. Despite his celebrated objections during the invasion of Poland, he allowed German troops to move through Hungary and invade Romania, and to Hungary went some of the spoils. Teleki signed the Tripartite Pact with Germany and the Treaty of Eternal Friendship with Yugoslavia, wanting to maintain good relations with both countries. But, as Germany planned to invade Yugoslavia via Hungary, giving at least a pretense of threats against Hungarian and German minorities, Teleki began to form a strategy to use his talents as a statesman and stay as non-belligerent as he could. But before the Count and Prime Minister could find a way out of this political dilemma, an arrangement was made behind his back by the chief of the Hungarian general staff, which Teleki denounced as treason. The night he learned the German army was marching through Hungary, he wrote a letter to His Serene Highness Miklos Horthy saying, We broke our word out of cowardice with respect to the Treaty of Permanent Peace outlined in your Mohat speech. The nation feels it. We've thrown away its honor. We've allied ourselves with scoundrels, since not a single word is true about the alleged atrocities. Not against Hungarians, not even against Germans. We will become body snatchers. A nation of trash. I did not hold you back. I'm guilty. Then, Teleki put a gun to his head and pulled the trigger, later to be buried on these very grounds around the idyllic Cotolo Palace. But that wouldn't happen for another eight years, because it is 1933 and we are at the World Boy Scout Jamboree! F. Hayden Dimmock, writing for the UK scouting magazine The Scouter, reported that it was a jamboree of smiling faces and loving hearts. That, I think, sums up the fourth World Scout Jamboree at Gadala, Hungary. Never has there been a happier gathering of the world's scouts, and never has kindness been showered upon guests in such an overwhelming abundance as by the Hungarian nation. I say that fearlessly, remembering all past jamborees, and am confident that no one will deny it. From peasant to the regent himself, we received a welcome and ever-flowing stream of kindness. To Count Paul Teleki, the jamboree camp chief, and Dr. Damolna, international commissioner for Hungary, and to their gallant band of organizers, we owe a very deep debt of gratitude. 
Having said that, I must hasten to add that once again it was the boys themselves who made the Jamboree the tremendous success it undoubtedly was. The Hungarian scouts set themselves out to make us feel at home. What we should have done without our cousins in the camp, I do not know. They acted as interpreters and guides and taught us how to cook the Hungarian food which was supplied to us. The opening day was a day of triumph for the Hungarian scouts, a realization of all they had worked and planned for during the past two years. But it was also a triumph of us, of the British contingent. We glowed with national pride when Chief Robert Baden-Powell entered the arena. He had brought the world of youth together in a common fellowship for the fourth time. We had a right to feel proud, and the welcome accorded to him by the Hungarians was most riotous. Many of the scouts wore their national costumes, Belgian peasants, Polish fishermen with a huge net, Armenians in hafaya and tabak, and Czechoslovakians in quaint, colorful dress. The Cairo scouts carried bunches of pompous grass, and each of the Swedish boys carried a colored balloon. These were simultaneously released as they passed the saluting base. Ten float gaily away over the stands and out of sight. Ireland marched to the skirl of its pipes and secured a special cheer. Austria carried weird instruments made from tree branches and pieces of wood, and those from Tyrol a mighty crucifix of solid wood twenty feet high. It took more than an hour for the representatives of the thirty-four nations to pass the saluting base. The excited Hungarians in their three stands rose time and again to their feet to cheer the scouts as they passed. I have been to all but one of the international jamborees, and each seems more splendid, more awe-inspiring, more thrilling. Twenty thousand boys, white, black, tan, Catholic, Protestant, Mohammedan, Jew, marching along together towards a new world of hope and peace. As the van passed into the distance, I felt that they were marching into the generation that is more priceless than greed of gold or lust for power, and that national pride is useless without international understanding. Then, from the distance, they came charging back, shoulder to shoulder, their voices rising to a crescendo as they raced madly back to the stands, twenty thousand boys telling the world that happiness comes from love and goodwill. It seemed that they were trying to make the echoes of their voices circle the world so that all might hear their mighty supplication that there be peace in our time. Oh, it is beautiful. Beautiful, murmured a Hungarian to me. I am overwhelmed. These boys are so happy, so friendly. I have seen them in their camps. Would that all the statesmen of the world could come to live with them at this jamboree? Much they would learn. Indeed, we were all learning. At a signal, the multitude was silent to listen to the address of the Regent of Hungary, Admiral Horthy, who, with the chief, had previously inspected the scouts. His Serene Highness first spoke in English, then in Hungarian. 
You have come to Hungary from all parts of the world to testify to the magnificent and uplifting power of the Brotherhood represented by Scouting. The noble ties of friendship I believe me stronger among you through the Fourth World Jamboree. I am convinced that the Jamboree will do much towards the promotion of human goodwill and peaceful cooperation for the general good of humanity. The Hungarian nation offers you these wood-girt fields with best wishes for your camping. The Hungarian nation welcomes you and your leader, the founder of the World Scout Movement, Lord Baden-Powell. Welcome to you all. I hope you will feel at home. I do not attempt to write a full story of the Jamboree. The best I can give you is glimpses and impressions. To me, the greatest moment of the Jamboree was when Chief bade us farewell. In front of the stands, massed in close ranks, the scouts sat to hear their chief. From the saluting base, he thanked all those who had helped towards the success of the Jamboree. The scouters who brought the boys, the Jamboree staff, the regent and the Hungarian people with a word about the friendships which had been made. A word of more solemn thanks. Let us pause for one moment for each of us to silently thank God for bringing us together as a happy family at Gadala. The impressive silence was unbroken save the rustle of flags until the chief said goodbye. My brothers, those of you who are at the last jamboree in England will remember how the golden arrow was handed out to each country as a symbol of goodwill flying forth to all the ends of the earth through the Brotherhood of Scouting. Now, at Gadulla, we have another symbol. Each of you wears the badge of the White Stag of Hungary. I want you to treasure that badge when you go from here and to remember that. Like the golden arrow, it also has its message and its meaning for you. The Hungarian hunters of old pursued the miraculous stag, not because they expected to kill it, but because it led them on in the joy of the chase to new trails and fresh adventures, and so to capture happiness. You may look on at the white stag as the pure spirit of scouting, bringing forward and upward, ever leading you onward and upward to leap over difficulties, to face new adventures in your active pursuit of the higher aims of scouting, aims which bring you happiness. These aims are to do your duty to God, to your country, and to your fellow man by carrying out the scout law. In that way, each one of you help to bring about God's kingdom upon earth, the reign of peace and good will. Therefore, before leaving you, I ask you, Scouts, this question. Will you do your best to make friends with others and peace in the world? Like a rumble of thunder, the answer rang out in a wonderful promise as the figure of the white stag was raised aloft. And so we came to the last day, with the arena once again the scene, and thousands upon thousands to see the scouts bid goodbye, to hear their mighty shout of brothers, 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 brothers.
Welcome to Season 1, Episode 6 of the Turan Explorer Podcast, a show about not just the ethnography of Hungary, but many of those who have called themselves ethnographers of Hungary. The show is hosted by me, Turan Explorer, and brought to you by the genius producer Boss Moss. First of all, thank you to everyone who listened to the Nimrod episode. People's feedback was very motivating, and I know it's been a long wait between then and now, but uh, let's just say I was lost in the woods. I'm excited, however, to be back with another meaty, really fascinating, pretty long episode. As has become the trend for me, we'll take a look at one of my favorite medieval chronicles of Hungarian history, the often erroneous but brilliantly written Gesta Hunarum et Hungarum by Shimon Kezai, written sometime in the 1280s. We've been moving at a snail's pace through this text, but I really like using it as a springboard to explore other subjects from Hungarian mythology and history and the Turinist subculture and elsewhere. In our last episode, we did a deep, deep dive into the cult of Nimrod, who Kezai claims is the ancestral forefather of the Hungarian people. But, of course, Nimrod is a biblical character, sometimes depicted as the creator of the Tower of Babel and often understood as the most evil king in history. He was most likely a composite figure based on several different ancient Mesopotamian rulers, but the origin of Kezai's Nimrod in a Hungarian context is still unknown and hotly debated. Perhaps he was modifying Menumorut, a possibly fictitious king written about in another Hungarian chronicle, that of Anonymous from five decades prior. Perhaps there is an underexplored tradition of Nimrod as a positive figure with similarities to some of those in the Caucasus. Or perhaps, as some Hungarian Turinists argue, he was a Hungarian-speaking ubermensch-like king of Mesopotamia back when the glorious Magyars ruled Babylon and Assyria and elsewhere. Regardless, today we'll be looking at his family, a focus on two brothers, brothers, brothers in particular. But first, I want to share a little random Hungarian language learning with you on the theme of brothers and family. I know about 12% of this podcast's audience is in Hungary, so you guys probably know all of this. But for everyone else, you should know how complicated Hungarian family-related vocabulary is. And pretty much everything I have to say about it is funny, weird, or thought-provoking, including that the etymology of the Hungarian word for sibling, testver, is literally the words for body and blood smushed together. It doesn't just sound like that, it is that. According to Gabor Zeitz's Dictionary of Hungarian Etymology, the first attestation of the word as a noun was in 1650, but prior to then it was an adjective, ed testver, or the even bigger phrase, ed testver, kind of used to describe a person of one's body and blood. This is quite likely derived from the Old Testament terms regarding flesh and blood or bones and blood to refer to human beings. As you can imagine, this would make it a concept of brotherhood that wouldn't predate Christianity, leading us to ask the question, how did the ancient Magyars think about their brothers and their sisters for that matter? Well, like so many perspectives of pre-9th century Hungarian culture and history, we can only assemble a vague image, and a lot of this can be done through looking at etymologies. One much older term for brother in Hungarian is atyafi, dating and writing back a bit further, at least to 1372, using a now pretty archaic word for father atya, and 
B being shortened from boy or my father's boy. Son and daughter function pretty unusually in Hungarian as well, as they are actually just the same word for boy and girl, fiu or lány, but often formed with a possessive declension, so fia or lanya, meaning his or her boy or his or her girl. But when it comes to siblings, it's a little bit more complicated than even that. You see, Keshtver is one's sibling of an unidentified age and sex, and it wasn't needed in Hungarian until the 17th century, because Hungarian has much older and more specific words for siblings than that. Hungarian has two words for brother and two words for sister, depending on if they're older or younger than you. So, Hoch is one's younger brother. Its first usage may date much further back to 1067, predating even Atyafi, with cognates in other Finno-Ugric languages words for brother. Bat is the word for older brother, though it can sometimes be deployed to mean brothers in general, and there are records of its use quite early as well, back to the 13th century, but its origins are disputed, with similar-sounding words in Albanian, Romanian, and Slavic languages. Interestingly, it is quite similar to the Hungarian word for uncle, bachi, and there are some theories that the two might be related, but more on uncle-cousin stuff in a second. When it comes to sister, the two words also sound wildly different and likely have very different etymologies. Older sister circles back to resemble testver for sibling. That word is nover, but quite literally it means woman blood. And from at least a non-native speaker's perspective, I hope it's not lost on you how interesting it is that nuns and nurses are also sometimes referred to as woman blood, nover. And wrapping up our four siblings, we have Hug, or younger sister, first recorded around 1131 with an unknown etymology. Originally, this word might have just meant sister. Of course, we know Hungarians came from Asia, basically, at least compared to other Europeans, and interestingly, other Asian languages do have specific words for older and younger sisters and brothers. Japanese even has multiple words for older brother and older sister, depending on whether they're older than the speaker or older than the person who their brother and sister were. You can find other complexities in Chinese, Tamil, Kazakh, and other languages, and of course, these similarities are incredibly incredibly enticing for many of the Turinists or alternative Hungarian linguists who have argued that Hungarian is secretly related to a bunch of languages mainstream theorists believe it is not. But what the records indicate is that this wasn't a native feature of the Hungarian language prior to their arrival in Europe. Rather, the older words for brother and sister in general may have gotten demoted to the words for younger brother and sister, and new ones were adopted for the elders. Knowing this, it is even more dizzying the way other family-related words are used in the Hungarian language and how they incorporate bach, uch, nover, and hug. Let me try to explain without making things more confusing than they already are. So, unoka means grandchild, first recorded in Hungarian around 1209, and it is probably borrowed from a Slavic language extremely similar to words for grandchildren in Polish, Russian, and South Slavic languages. But, if you fuse unoka with with those previously mentioned sibling words, they become entirely new family members. Grandchild plus older brother, Unokobach, is your male cousin. 
Grandchild plus older sister, Unica Nover, is your female cousin. But grandchild plus younger sister, Unica Hug, is your niece. And grandchild plus younger brother, Unica Och, is your nephew. And instead of slapping on great, 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 greats in front of the grandchild like English does, Hungarian has unique prefixes for the word grandchild, which are all reflective of the way that grandparents are described as well. So, derunaka is great-grandchild, prefixed with a word of Slavic etymology, sometimes related to grandparents. Ukunaka is great-great-grandchild, using a Finno-Ugric-derived word for ancestor or ancient. Seipunaka is great-great-great-grandchild, but it means pretty-grandchild or nice-grandchild, using seip, one of the most commonly used words in the Hungarian language. And finally, there's ounaka, for great-great-great-great-grandchild, also kind of translating to ancient-grandchild, like the one from only two greats ago. There's even more complexity about the Hungarian words for family that are quite different than other European languages, but I'll stop my tangent there. I just wanted to share this with you because we're on the subject of brothers and sons and family today, and I think that examining the root words and transformations of concepts as basic as family vocabulary can really color our understanding of the diversity of cultures that informed the creation of today's Hungarian language, as well as how dynamic the changes between 895 and our time were, and hopefully inspire us to think about how many more changes may take place between our time and the unicas of our unicas of our unicas of our unicas. Homályos fény szűrődik be az a lakon emeséhez, nyugodt arccal fekszik az ágyon, szemére jött egy különös álom, urul, madár, száll le az égből, hozzá, jött le, fentről a fényből, fuchs van a nyakába, gampi a kezébe, emesét hirtelen megbassza keményen. So there's your Hungarian language lesson, presented in the way that everyone wants their language learning to be, by a non-native speaker with a bad accent who only points out how complicated things are. Also complicated with roots just as multicultural and complex as the Hungarian family-related vocabulary is the document that we've been looking at. Last episode, we pointed out how bizarre Kezai's description of Nimrod is, and that this clergyman explicitly contradicts the Bible, making Nimrod from the lineage of Japheth. This is still really weird, though, and doesn't explain that much. I find, with a lot of these early Hungarian legends, they're directly imported from the Christian cosmology and associations they would have had for medieval Europeans in general, like Gog and Magog's association with the steppe and Scythians, for example, right? Even though there was some influence that cultures descended from the Scythians had on the conquering Magyars, a lot of Kezai and Anonymous's understanding of them are from an outsider's perspective looking in. But also very interesting are the somewhat identifiable transformations of the religion and culture of the Eurasian steppe, eroded a bit over time as the Hungarians Europeanized, but still with strong folk influences. So after describing how cool Nimrod's temples were, the gold and jewels and stones he used to build them, and how in Egypt and Nubia you can still see it today, Kezai says, Regrettably, we must set aside these details. Nimrod builds the Tower of Babel, but is struck down in a great confusion of tongues. But wherever he began, whether that's Egypt or Babylon, Kezai says his people traveled to what is now Persia and, quote, There he begat two sons, Hunor and Mogor, by his wife 
Anath. It was from them that the Huns or Hungarians took their origins. However, it seems the giant Menrot had other wives apart from Anath, on whom he sired many sons and daughters besides Hunor and Mogor. Hunor and Mogor and their fathering of the Huns and Hungarians are super important, but with Eneth, we finally got an element of the Hungarian origin saga of Kezai's that is not cribbed from Christianity, but like the Turul that visits Emeshe in her dream in Anonymous's legend, it is quite likely an actual artifact of the prehistoric Hungarian religion, and that is the deer that Hunor and Mogor will famously chase. In fact, it's been suggested by historians like Yeno Such and others that Eneth and Kezai's story and Emeshe in Anonymous's story are pretty comparable figures and both serve the purpose of embodying or introducing totemistic animals that we can use to understand ancient Hungarian paganism a little bit better. So one thing we should understand, as always, about writers like Kezai and Anonymous is that both of them are writing in a Christian context about a people that lived 300 years prior to them and had undergone by their time a massive historical transformation. And in moving from religion to legend, their myths and folktales had transformed as well. Now, historians and archaeologists like Andras Alfoldi, more on him in a second, have argued that pagan deities that are interpreted as messengers by these chroniclers may have only turned into that during the several hundred years of Hungarian Christian conversion. These animal messengers, in the case of Eneth, it was a deer, and in the case of Emeshe, it was a turul bird of prey, would have actually been much closer to the deities themselves in the original Hungarian pagan religion. It's generally accepted by linguists and historians that Eneth potentially transformed from the old Hungarian word for high as in a female deer, that word is uno, as agreed upon by Hungarian historians like Jeno Such, Jula Kristo, and at this point many others. This will be important when we learn a little bit more about the mythical deer hunt the Hungarians and Huns went on, but I want to also return back to Anonymous's Gesta and its description of Emeshe, the mother of Almos, and her visit by the Turul, a mythic bird of prey, somewhere between an eagle and a falcon. So technically, the Turul is just a messenger who brings Emeshe the vision of her children who would propagate the Hungarian throne. But this is also sometimes interpreted as the bird, the Turul itself, impregnating Emeshe. And believe me when I tell you that I have seen some nationalist Hungarian artwork out there that gets very horny at the thought of this. <laughs> Now, Anonymous's Emeshe and Kezai's Enath are not the same figures, and they give birth to different foundational Hungarian forefathers. With Emeshe, it's Almos, and with Enath, it's both Hunor and Mogul. But Emeshe's story, with the bird and the pregnancy, also has interesting parallels with the myths of Eurasian steppe societies. For example, in the secret history of the Mongols, the oldest Mongolian text dating to just a few decades after Genghis Khan's death, it's written that his own mother-in-law dreamt of a white falcon holding the sun and the moon in its claws, visiting her in a dream, predicting the propagation of their royal dynasty. 
In fact, Kudul is most likely of a Turkic etymology, specifically referring to a crested goshawk or a saker falcon, but eventually morphing into a personal name, at least in the Turkic context. What's wild is that the founder of the Seljuk Empire, the Turkmen chieftain Abu Talib Muhammad Tugril ibn Mikael, well, you see, Tugril is in the middle name right there. That's from the same root word, likely, as Tudul. As did the name Togrul, Khan of the Karaites, who fascinatingly were Nestorian Christian Mongols whose confederation was defeated and then absorbed by Genghis Khan himself. Falconry, as you can imagine, was a pivotal practice by many people across Eurasia, training and utilizing birds of prey to help them with a literal bird's eye view as they hunted on horseback. While there are some reports that indicate some Turkic steppe societies like the Kazakh and the Kyrgyz bring falcons into yurts during childbirth as a way to ward off demons, it's important to note that falcons are just objectively cool, and sedentary societies, even outside of the steppes, have bird myths kind of comparable to steppe societies too. In the Iranian Shana May, for example, the Persian Book of Kings we looked at in the first episode, it's written that the father of the hero Rostam learned how to perform a C-section birth after summoning a mythical bird-type creature. While the turul and the deer, as they've been represented in both gestas, were very likely totems in the religion of the ancient Hungarians and artifacts of this pre-Christian mythology, it's easy to get carried away and attempt to associate the turul so strongly with Hungarian or nomadic Eurasian or Turanian culture that you run the risk of losing sight of the simple fact that birds of prey are cool to everyone in the world. One example of the problem of over-prescribing an ethnic route to cultural artifacts can be learned from the debates about two discs from Rakamaz in Hungary, an extremely important archaeological find that represents one of a few artifacts we have of the conquering Hungarians. They're from the 9th or early 10th centuries. These discs are constructed using some post-Sassanid metalworking motifs and elements, which actually was quite common for Eurasian peoples during that time period. In fact, gold or blacksmiths from Persia who were trained in the Persian blacksmithing style would often set up shop in semi-nomadic societies pretty far from their homelands and lend their skills to cultures that had less of a metallurgical industrial culture. These rakamaz discs also feature such techniques, those of someone who was trained in a post-Sassanid artistic style, and they may have been hair ornamentation for a Madhyar noblewoman's braids. On these discs, they feature a large bird with floral plumage and some plant matter in its beak. In either of its talons, it gently holds two smaller birds. The discovery of these discs sent shockwaves across Hungarian archaeological and historical disciplines because of the rarity of pre-Christian Hungarian artifacts. Andras Alfodi was an extremely influential numismatist, or someone who studies old coins. While he was Hungarian, he became a titan in the field for his analysis of ancient Roman coinage. But returning to Hungarian artifacts, Alfodi analyzed the discs and wrote an article called An Ugrian Creation Myth on Early Hungarian Phalere. At this time, in 1969, Hungarian anthropology and archaeology was a lot more grounded in reality 
reality than it had been during the interwar period, with most of the cranks and esoteric ethno-nationalists having been pretty marginalized. In its place, however, was a fixation on Hungarian culture's Finno-Ugric roots, perhaps, one might argue, to the point of over-prescriptiveness of a Finno-Ugric character to Hungarian culture. Alfoldi writes about how the creator deity of the ancient Hungarians was likely depicted as an eagle, as mentioned earlier, but he also draws parallels between the Rakamaz discs and the creation mythology recorded of the Finno-Ugric peoples, specifically those still in Siberia or the Ural Mountains. You see, most of these cultures have an earth diver creation myth, shared across Asia and some other places, interestingly among many native North American cultures too. In the Finno-Ugric example, the world begins as a primordial sea, and the creator deity sends a helper, almost always a duck or other waterfowl, to the bottom of the ocean to fetch some mud. When the helper bird returns to the surface, that mud swells up tremendously and becomes the land as we know it. It was Alfoldi's analysis back in the 60s that the scene, the big bird with two small birds in its talons, was a representation of that myth. The big bird, of course, being the eagle, the creator deity, and the small birds being the waterfowl. I came across Alfoldi's analysis and was really fascinated by it. I think there's still good stuff in there, but a more recent review of the discs by the archaeologist Adam Bolok has utilized the expertise of ornithologists as well as a survey of Islamic art, especially from the Sassanid and post-Sassanid Persian Empire as well as Islamic Iberia, to call Alfoldi's idea that they represent a Finno-Ugric creation myth into question. Olok believes that instead it was a much more common and general heraldric symbol among many of these cultures to depict a large bird, usually a peacock, or in this case possibly a black vulture, with its chicks in either of its talons, with extensive examples from the same or preceding time periods. While Alfoldi's analysis is in many respects quite good, it also exemplifies a kind of inverse to the more wacky forms of Turinism, a hyper-focus on Ugric, let's say, essentialism, that itself ignores the extremely diverse steppe society that the Hungarians did in fact come from. This is the really exhausting thing about Hungarian prehistory. There are so many unknowns and such little concrete evidence to color our vision of the pre-conquest society with so many conflicting agendas and reactions happening often at the same exact time that you can get lost pretty quickly. Whether it's people deliberately trying to push a narrative or people just rejecting that narrative so strongly they make the wrong call, you can really lose your mind in this shit, and a lot of people have. I think I run the world's biggest English language podcast, or at least TikTok account, covering Hungarian anthropology, pseudo-anthropology, and Turinism, and I try to navigate this stuff as carefully as I can, with as much hedging as possible, but take what even I say with a grain of salt, because I guarantee you some of what I said will be outdated eventually, or already has been. I'd say that if I was a real academic, but even still, I'm just a guy recording a free podcast in his wife's walk-in closet. But I can tell you the Turan Explorer promise is that we will explore Turan together, my friends. We will lose our minds side by side on the step.
Now, anyway, I'm talking about Emeche and the tool that knocked her up a lot, and I know that's from Anonymous. Enef, who you can associate with a deer, is the one from Hezai's Gesta. And you may be thinking it's a little sexist for me to treat these two women from Hungarian mythology so interchangeably, and I'd say you're right, but it's not my fault. Not only do neither of the Gestas Hungarum pass the Bechtel test, but there is an etymological linkage between these two beast mothers too, at least argued by the real academics. The best linguistic analysis we have suggests that Eneth's name comes from the Hungarian word uno, meaning female deer, and if you remember from Anonymous's Gesta, Emeche is the daughter of a guy with a crazy name, Duke Una de Bulia. Now, a keen ear may recognize that the word uno as the first part of that word, and literary historian Geza Sant'Martoni Sebo believes that's because his name represents totemistic animals themselves. One thing that we basically know for sure is that the Hungarian pagan religion was a shamanistic one, one that would involve trances by still unknown means. In fact, there's a lot of debate around whether or not the earliest Hungarians would have used psychedelic mushrooms during their shamanistic rituals. And by the way, TikTok wouldn't let me post a video about this because they said it promoted drug use. So you heard it here first, folks. We know the other Finno-Ugric peoples did, however. L.G. Sigang, a literary scholar from UC Berkeley, provides a survey of this in a 1980 article, The Use of Hallucinogens in the Shamanistic Tradition of Finno-Ugrian People. As early as early as 1658, Russian witnesses write about the Ob-Ugrian Ostyak peoples consuming the psychedelic mushroom fly agaric, with 18th century records of Vogels, Laps, Samoyeds, and other Siberian peoples also doing so, all of whom speak languages of the same language family as the Hungarians. What's more, like so many Magyar scientist explorers before him, the Hungarian linguist Bernard Munkacsi traveled across Russia around the turn of the century and visited many of these peoples in Central and Eastern Asia to record their folk songs, and not only do they mention the consumption of the mushroom, they even include quote-unquote fly agaric songs, believed to have been composed under the influence of the drug. But as Alfoldi's debatable conclusions about the Rakamaz dis demonstrate, we can't essentialize too much about the Finno-Ugric traditions to draw conclusions about conquest-age Hungarian ones. While almost all Finno-Ugric peoples of the Urals in Siberia use a word for mushroom that comes from the same root, Hungarian does not. The Hungarian word for mushroom is of a Slavic root, and that word is gomba, like from Mario. This means Hungarians didn't use the word prior to their arrival in the Pannonian Basin, which can be read two different ways. One is that they had no psychedelic mushroom tradition whatsoever, and if they did in the Urals, they would have lost it long before their journey to the modern European homeland. Or two, that the old word for mushroom was so explicitly associated with shamanism and pagan trances that they stopped using it entirely after their conversion to Christianity, adopting instead the Slavic gomba to use purely in a culinary sense. That article covers other aspects from etymology and medieval records about mushrooms, and you can read it yourself, but one last interesting fact from it I'll bring up is that there is a tradition in Hungarian folktales of Haltoshes, which are Hungarian shamans, showing up on people's doorsteps and asking them for milk. 
What's interesting about that is that scholars have observed the Finno-Ugric Vogul people drinking milk to counteract fly agaric's toxic effects, and milk has been noted as a useful, if primitive, detoxicant for such hallucinogens. But whether these trances were triggered by hallucinogenic mushrooms, fasting, sleep deprivation, others, or a combination of these methods, trances likely played some role in the prehistoric Hungarian religion, and further linking Eneth, Kezai's deer mother, and Emeshe, Anonymous's bird mother, are arguments that Uno de Bulia is actually a misunderstanding on the part of Anonymous. Geza Saint Martoni Sebo suggests that Anonymous mistook Emeshe as a personal name, and that Emesh, or Emesh, in the form Emeshed, may have been formed by the old Hungarian verb Emi, meaning half awake, half ecstatic during a vigil, half experiencing reality, half a dream, which was actually suggested by Hungarian writers talking about Emeshe's dream as early as the 17th century. We know that while Anonymous and Kezai's Gestas are the oldest existing Hungarian chronicles, there probably was at least one one that was older, though now it's lost to time. The theory goes that this gesta, or chronicle, when writing the Tudul legend we now associate with Emeshe, actually wrote ex filia unodbilia, meaning a woman from the family uno, or unod. So basically a woman from the lineage of the deer. But Anonymous turned that into a Magyar chieftain, and he invented Emeshe's name to refer to the hazy, dreamlike state she would have been in while experiencing such a trance. And if you remember our reading of the myth in Anonymous's Gesta, he even explicitly says Almos's name comes from the Hungarian word for dream. So that, in addition to them both fulfilling the same role in their stories but via different lineages, is why some historians associate the legendary characters of Emeshe and Eneth as being at least the same archetypes, and them translating a kernel of Hungarian pagan religion into these chronicles. But no matter the etymology or where Eneth comes from, her sons Hunor and Mogor are the real stars of the deer story and they play a crucial role in connecting the Huns of Attila and the modern Hungarian Magyars. We've seen this trick before with Anonymous's Gesta, saying Almos was from the line of Attila. But what's notable about Kezai's framework is that he's actually one of the only old Hungarian chroniclers who doesn't draw a direct line from Attila to the Hungarian kings, establishing a much more interesting cousin link. Now, what I find kind of interesting about this is that this lays the foundation for a lot more ambiguity about the Huns and Hungarians. If they were direct descendants, that would be one thing. But the magic about the Huns and the Magyars being two branches of the same tree means that if you want to say the Hungarians are Huns in spirit, or argue that the connection between them is more social or cultural, well, that's a lot harder to debunk than saying the Hungarians are the pure and preserved descendants of Attila, crystallized in space and time until the modern age. Now, Hunor is obviously a play on the word Hun, but it's also been suggested that like the exonym for Hungarians, it might have also come from the word Onogur as well, those Bulgar Turks who lived close to the nomadic pre-conquest Magyars in the 8th century. 
And Mogor is similarly a riff on Magyar. In fact, you'll see a lot of later depictions of the story changing the character's name to Magor. These are two brothers, the best brothers, but they're not the only brothers. Kezai writes that Menrot had other wives apart from Eneth, on whom he sired many sons and daughters besides Hunor and Mogor. These sons and their posterity inhabit the land of Persia and resemble the Huns in stature and color, merely differing a little in speech like the Saxons and the Thuringians. So, I've been holding something back from you because I believe it deserves an episode all of its own where I can really dive into the storytelling of it, but I'll briefly give you a description of it here. During the Hungarians' migration from east to west as they conquered the Pannonian Basin, I used to find myself thinking of the process as a total break, unidirectional from east to west, never looking back until the romantic movement of Turinism cropped up in the 19th century. But one reason why I love learning about the medieval era with you is that it's really interesting how the quest for eastern origins and an explanation as to why the culture and language is so weird is pretty much as old is the Kingdom of Hungary itself. These medieval chroniclers were desperate to provide some narrative of the Hungarians that made them fit within the broader European canon, whether they were Scythians or Huns or descended from sometimes unsavory biblical figures. But the tradition of Hungarian guys making stuff up but doing the best that they could to explain Hungarian ethnic origins is about as old as another proud tradition. Hungarian guys going on brave adventures to dangerous or uncharted territories in order to explain Hungarian ethnic origins. I am speaking of Friar Julian, whose harrowing journey to the edges of the continent was a virtually unprecedented one in Hungarian history. Between the writing of Anonymous's Gesta and Kezai's, this Dominican monk, accompanied by three others, embarked on a series of journeys through land and sea to the so-called Magna Hungaria. If you've seen Martin Scorsese's Silence, this is the image you should probably have in your head. These monks traversed the Black Sea and Pontic Caspian Steppe, virtually starving for months on end. One of them died, and they had to rely on the hospitality of culture's few or no Europeans had ever encountered. What's really unbelievable, and the specifics of which are subject to a lot of debate and ambiguity, is that they eventually did find Hungarians, at least according to their accounts. They were motivated by a mission to spread Christianity as much as they were to connect with their nation's eastern roots, but their archives indicate they could speak with these newly found Hungarians with mutual intelligibility. In the episode where I plan on looking at this journey more, we can get into the details, but in short, there's speculation about whether he found a homeland for the Magyars, or if he found basically a separate breakaway Hungarian culture that had moved to the location he had traveled to. One anomaly that has been really annoying for historians and anthropologists is after staying with the Volga Bulgars, he finds these Hungarians within just a two-day travel, but he doesn't say in what direction. What's more, when he returned on his second trip, these people were totally wiped out by the Mongol invasions. Perhaps an even more interesting historical fact is that Julian's report of the Mongol Empire after his second journey is one of the first and most comprehensive ways 
many Europeans learned about the coming Mongol invasions, their culture, their fighting tactics, and what they could do to a society. The later travels of Friar John of Pion de Carpine to the Mongol Empire's court also indicated the presence of a Magna Hungaria somewhere in the region, writing that its dwellers were called Boschgarts, and one popular theory is that these Hungarians, whether they were in the specific Hungarian homeland or another secondary location, were so decimated by Mongol invasions that while many of the people indeed survived, they became Turkified, so to speak, resulting in the Bashkir population we know today. There's so much more to say about Friar Julian and his travels, but I bring him up because historian Yeno Such, whose analysis of and footnotes in my copy of Keizai's Guest have been very guiding as I've written these episodes, writes that Keizai's comment about the language of the Saxons and Thuringians indicates that he would have been well aware of the records of Julian's travels, even though he basically just generalizes it to Persia. The record of the Chronicles actually makes a similar comment comparing the Hungarians he encountered in Magna Hungaria and the modern-day Hungarians to the two German dialects. Kezai continues, But as Hunor and Mogor were Menrot's firstborn, they journeyed separately from their father in tents. Now it happened one day, when they had gone out hunting in the Miotis marshes, that they encountered a hind in the wilderness. As they went in pursuit of it, it fled before them. Then it disappeared from their sight altogether, and they could not find it no matter how long they searched. But as they were wandering through these marshes, they saw that the land was well suited for grazing cattle. They then returned to their father, and after obtaining his permission, they took all their possessions and went to live in the Meotis marshes. The Meotis region borders on their Persian homeland, and except from one very small ford, it is cut off on all sides by the sea. It has no rivers, but abounds in grass, trees, birds, fish, and animals. Access and exit to this land is difficult. So they entered the Miotis marshes and remained there for five years without leaving. So here we have the hind, probably after the turul, the most essential totemistic animal in Hungarian mythology. This one has a more commonly used name in Hungarian, too, the Chodasarvash, which means the miraculous or wonderful stag. You may notice that Sarvash and Uno are two different words, one for male deer and one for female deer. And interestingly, the folklore differs across sources and retellings about what sex the deer was. Sometimes male, sometimes female, sometimes both in a miraculous fashion. And a fun fact is that if you've played Halo Reach, you may recognize Kurul and Chodasarvash as being both names of the moons of the planet that the game takes place on. As in the game's lore, the planet was settled by Hungarians. But even more complex than the debate over whether the Turul was inspired by a specifically step-centric worldview or a more universal human fascination with cool birds, debate exists about whether the deer held a primordial role in the pre-conquest religion of the Hungarians, or if it was adopted 
from other sources, like many of the themes we've encountered so far in these chronicles. Professor Clara Chandor wrote a long series for Gallimus magazine where she quite artfully and comprehensively looks at Hungarian prehistory and myths and the linguistic, historical, and cultural conflicts they may have come from. She published this in Hungarian as a book, Linguistic Affinity and the Hun Tradition, Reindeer or Miracle Stag, and what I've read of the magazine series is quite good and worth a look at if you know enough Hungarian. If you don't speak it, you're going to look forward to the English translation. I'll definitely be letting anyone interested in my content know whenever it comes out. I'll get to her take in just a second, but you should know that Hungarian historians once thought that Kezai might have taken the legend of the stag from the records of 5th and 6th century historians associating the Huns and their westward migration with a mythical stag hunt. The first association of the Huns and the legend of a stag hunt was written by the 5th century Roman lawyer Sozomenos. He wrote, The Huns, it is said, were unknown to the Thracian of the Ister and the Goths before this period. For though they were dwelling secretly near to one another, a lake of vast extent was between them, and the inhabitants on each side of the lake respectively imagined that their own country was situated at the extremity of the earth, and that there was nothing beyond them but the sea and water. It so happened, however, that an ox, tormented by insects, plunged into the lake and was pursued by the herdsmen, who, perceiving for the first time that the opposite bank was inhabited, made known the circumference to his fellow tribesmen. Some, however, relate that a stag was fleeing, and showed some of the hunters who were of the race of the Huns the way which was concealed superficially by the water. On arriving at the opposite bank, the hunters were struck with the beauty of the country, the serenity of the air, and the adaptedness for cultivation and they reported what they had seen to their king. This is pretty convincingly parallel with the Hungarian legend of the two brothers chasing the stag into the land of Hungary. These Huns, at least according to the writers Sozomenos and later Jordanes, find a similarly beautiful country by following a fleeing stag who led them successfully across a body of water. But Yena Such strongly disputed that the stag would have had no religious or mythical symbolism to the pagan Hungarians. Through his comparative linguistic analysis of Eneth and Uno I mentioned earlier, and there is ample evidence of the long-standing motif of the mythic deer organically appearing in Hungarian folk tales of the era, early Hungarian artwork, and nomadic graves across the Hungarian basin, as Sándor mentions. While early chroniclers took a lot of ideas about the Huns from Roman sources long after Hungarians had settled in the country, there actually remains some debate about if the Hungarians might have had a Hun legend prior to their entry into the Carpathian Basin. But regardless of that, there is a pretty widespread consensus now that the miraculous deer legend was preserved at least in part from the pre-conquest period. Clara Chandor contrasts the legend of the stag with the Turul to advance an additional point, suggesting that the stag would have been a tradition embraced across the whole Hungarian society, whereas the Turul ancestorship may have just been the tradition of the Arpad-descended royal family. 
And drawing from Such's analysis, Shandor, in one of her articles for Galamos, paints a vivid picture of Keizai's process discovering the Hun legend of the stag as he was reading Roman authors, saying that anyone who has dealt with philology and researched into history like this has experienced the kind of crime-solving excitement that Keizai must have, scratching fading letters on yellow pages when he learned the similarities between the Hunnic legend from the Roman era and the existing folk myth of the Hungarians. And then, when Kezai read in the earlier chronicle, either Anonymous's or one that is now lost to time, the Arpad family's origins could have been linked to Attila, he must have been buzzing with excitement. The logic of the brothers may have been a natural conclusion Kezai came to to connect these two legends. As Such suggests, perhaps it is only the stylistic framework borrowed from Jordanes to fill out the familiar motif already in Hungarian culture. Herein, we return to the complex question about what people can be considered the same or part of the same lineage, a question that itself is probably ultimately fruitless in any context. Shandor talks about how the motif of hunters occupying a new homeland after following a deer there is widespread throughout Eurasia, but to consider all of those people relatives is like considering anyone wearing Adidas German or anyone wearing Chanel French. These motifs were borrowed across cultures, seen in the folk mythologies of or describing Huns, if Sozomenos and Jordanes are at least to be believed, but also of some Turkic people, Assyrians, nomadic Iranian speakers like the Ossetians and Uralic Vogels as well. If the artifacts of the Scythians tell us anything, this was a celestial or flying deer motif commonly embraced by that famous civilization as well, with belt buckles, quivers, dishes, and even that mummified ice maiden's tattoo featuring deers prominently. Another feature of many Eurasian steppe peoples, one that has similarities to Viking mythology actually, is the belief in a world tree, and often a celestial deer in Iranian nomadic art would be depicted with its antlers intertwined with it. As I've hopefully driven home, the deer and the toodle bird of prey are probably the most important mythical animals in these Hungarian myths, at least important enough to be the moons in Halo Reach. And existing artifacts from earlier nomadic cultures do in fact juxtapose the image of a deer and a bird of prey, too. Shandor continues that the Iranian nomads spread this motif across not just other nomadic cultures, but sedentary ones, too, with some Greek sources depicting such a myth in the second century. Clear elements of the story exist in some Turkic, Mongolian, and Ugric myths, potentially reaching those cultures in the second half of the first millennium BC. Some versions of the legend emerge on the steppe or in the Caucasus, like in the Ossetian Nart epic poem, which may preserve some aspects of Scythian legends. They depict a golden deer who is hunted by a hero throughout his life, but he never catches it until he's in the afterlife. And when he does, the deer transforms into the daughter of the sun god who he marries. Others depict the deer as an ancestor, and in some, the deer becomes a constellation. While the direct lineage of Hungarians and Scythia, so emphasized by these chroniclers, is anachronistic, Shandor's assessment is that the Hungarian version has its close parallels with the Iranian, Persian, and Alan ones. But the theme of two brothers transforming into the ancestors of two people can be found in Turkic and Finno-Ugric myths too. One legend describes the relationship between the Bulgars and the Khazars as such, and an old Bulgarian carol writes about two brothers who chase two stags 
stags with golden antlers. There's another interesting clue about the Chodha Sarvash that suggests the stag or deer may have had a special religious symbolism to the pagan Hungarians, and that's in the Sarvash part. In some languages, it's deduced that the original words used to describe some animals were considered so taboo that euphemisms wound up replacing those original words. An often cited example of this is the word bear, which may have had a name in Proto-Indo-European, but many Indo-European languages instead use a word derived from the brown one. It's suggested that is because the original word, meaning bear in these cultures, was taboo, as bears were so scary, even speaking its real name may summon it. But as that belief dissipated over time, the new word meaning brown one just became the word for bear. These linguistic taboos may have also emerged because certain animals were considered so sacred you didn't want to use their actual names. The word for stag, sarvash, in Hungarian literally means the horned one, and it's been argued this is because of such a taboo. Additionally, the word for wolf is farkash, or the tailed one, via similar logic. So this was a myth and mechanism used to explain the origin of many Eurasian nations, and although the most likely explanation of the Hunnic element is Keizai retconning them into the story after noticing the similarities between the two myths, it wouldn't have been unusual for two contemporaneous peoples to think of themselves as related to one another via a similar mythic structure. Why this myth first appears in Keizai and not Anonymous is another question, but it's possible Anonymous wished to wipe out any truly supernatural pagan elements in his story to Christianize it. After all, they take the pagan blood oath, but that's more of a description of their behavior, not really lending credibility to their religion. But by Keizai's time, especially with King Laszlo the Kuman and his sacrilegious associations we talked about a few episodes ago, there may have been a bit more freedom to talk up these claims. We also don't know if Keizai's chronicle was received well by Laszlo or to what extent he personally would have tolerated this pagan emphasis. Professor Shandor writes that some believe it wasn't, pointing to a letter that he wrote his mother that indicated he was maybe more Christian than some of his actions led on, or at least believed that the holy protection of the king Saint Istvan would guide and protect his rule. But even though the myth got reinterpreted over time to specifically associate the stag with Hungary itself, Keizai's chronicle and the narrative of the miraculous hunt for the Chodasarvash impacted virtually every other chronicle written after him, all including pieces of Keizai's Hun history. Though I should also point out that while this story regularly repeats that the stag led the brothers to Hungary, and in many other tellings of the myth it is written as such, in Keizai's Gesta, it actually does not. It leads them to those Maotis marshes where the Huns once occupied and the Hungarians also existed for a time. Keizai was well known internationally too. Remember that scholars believe this was intended for an Italian audience with lots of Italianisms in its Latin. While Arpad, as a legendary ancestor, became more embraced after the popular discovery of these chronicles, he never gained the popularity of Attila. And with more writing about the Hunnic prince from the people he he fought and conquered, it just added to the epic lore people naturally want in their origin myths. And Clara Shandor further adds that the glory of the past came in handy, especially in troubled times, which there's been no shortage of throughout Hungarian history.
So that's just a glance into the pre-Christian background of the mythical hunt and the miraculous stag and the case of its connection with other cultures. Following Kezai's account of the story, the deer would reappear in subsequent legends throughout Hungarian history. We'll encounter it as a motif a lot, but eventually the story merges with that of Saint Eustache and Saint Hubert, two Christian martyrs whose narratives often get confused for one another, but are today both considered the patron saints of hunters, Eustache in Bavaria and Austria, and Hubert in France, Belgium, and Western Germany. While Kezai's original telling of the story of the White Stag, with its hunters and promised land and pagan parallels, don't really reflect the themes of Eustache and Hubert stags, versions of the myth published in the chronicles of subsequent centuries absolutely did. Because of their association with hunters, they were some of the most venerated medieval saints, and you can find their symbolism across Europe. If you're unfamiliar with the story of Saint Eustache, who predated Hubert, here abridged is how Jacobus de Voragine writes about him, and the telling of his story that popularized the mythical deer that he saw. Eustache, who first was named Placidus, was master of the hosts of Trajan, the emperor, and was well engaged in the merciful works, but he was a worshipper of idols, and he had a wife of the same religion, also devoted to merciful deeds, by whom he had two sons, which he had brought up according to his estate. And because he was attentive to works of mercy, he deserved to be illumined to the way of the truth. So on a day, as he was on hunting, he found a herd of deer, among whom he saw one more fair and greater than the others, which departed from the company and sprang into the thickest part of the forest. And the other knights ran after the other deer, but Placidus pursued him with all his might and strove to overtake him. And when the heart saw that he followed with all his power, at the last he went up on a high rock, and Placidus, approaching him nigh, thought in his mind how he might take him. And as he beheld and considered the heart diligently, he saw between his horns the form of the holy cross shining more clear than the sun, and the image of Christ, which by the mouth of the heart, just as aforetime Balaam by the ass spoke to him, saying, Placidus, why do you follow me hither? I have appeared to you in this beast for your own grace. I am Jesus Christ, whom you honor ignorantly. Your alms have ascended up before before me, and therefore I come hither, so that by this heart that you hunt, I may hunt you. And when Placidus heard that, he had great dread, and descended from his horse to the ground. And an hour after, he came to himself, and arose from the ground, and said, Tell me again what you have said, and I shall believe you. And then our Lord said, I am Jesus Christ, who formed heaven and earth, who made the light to increase, and divided it from darkness, and established time, days, and hours, who formed men of the slime of the earth, who appeared on earth in flesh for the succor of human progeny, who was crucified, 
dead, buried, and arose on the third day. And when Placidus heard this, he fell down again to the earth and said, I believe, Lord, that you are he that made all things and convert those who err. And our Lord said to him, If you believe, go to the bishop of the city and be baptized. And Placidus said to him, Lord, do you desire that I hide this thing from my wife and sons? And our Lord said to him, Tell them they must also make themselves clean with thee and see that you come again tomorrow hither, that I may appear again to you and may show to you that which shall befall you hereafter. After this, Placidus changes his name to Eustache and gets baptized, and then everything only gets worse for him from there. Their servants die of plague, they lose their livestock, they get ostracized from their community, they try to flee, and in some tellings of the myth, his sons get taken by a lion and a wolf. They actually survive, and Eustache winds up serving the Roman emperors Trajan and then Hadrian. But when Hadrian demands he make an offering to the pagan gods of Rome, they refuse. In classic fashion, the Romans throw Eustache and his Christian family to the lions, who refuse to touch him. So they get thrown into a brazen bull instead, the big metal statue of a bull with a fire underneath it that roasts you to death. According to legend, they died, but their bodies were untouched by flames, which seems like a bit of a rip-off, if you ask me. But the deer, with its glamorous cross between its antlers, is easily the most famous symbol of St. Eustache and has been embraced by hunters everywhere. In fact, the logo of the popular German Digestif Jägermeister, which is not as good as Unicum, if you ask me, is that classic deer with a cross in its antlers, with Jägermeister, meaning Master Hunter, the highest-ranking official overseeing matters of hunting and gamekeeping in Germany. About a hundred years after Kezai's Gesta, another extremely influential chronicle was writ, this one with pictures, called the Chronicum Pictum or Illuminated Chronicle or Kepesh Chronica. In this one, the deer has a really cool and spooky look, with burning candles at the ends of its antlers, and according to legend, it told Laszlo I where to build a church, and Laszlo astutely identifies the deer as an angel. Later chronicles and poems modified the deer, writing that its lights were multicolored, that the image of the Virgin Mary and Jesus Christ could be seen through its antlers and other miraculous flourishes. And while Kezai's depiction of it does not explicitly describe the stag as white, many folktales and later records of the myth do. Related to that, and also suggesting a possible relationship to Asian stag myths, if we can believe the earliest tellings would have painted the stag white, we can perhaps link this to the elemental color symbolism of certain Asian societies. You might know traditional Chinese or Central Asian color symbolism, with cardinal directions corresponding with various colors. Often black represents the north, blue and green with the east, red with the south, and white with the West, though there are variations. This was a common symbolistic framework across Asia, and especially relevant to nomads of the steppe. Certain cultures that would break off, for example, from others, would sometimes adopt the description of those colors. When the Xiongnu, or Huns, who fought China, were originally defeated or 
driven off, a new people group conquered Bactria in Central Asia, and they referred to themselves as the White Huns as they traveled west. An associated group of these people occupied northern India called the Alkan Huns, but they were also referred to as the Red Huns, as that color was traditionally associated with the south, and they had migrated southward. So it's not illogical that a similar color direction association may have been held by ancient Hungarians with a white stag naturally leading these people to the west. Now, I should point out that mythical stags, especially white stags, are common features in many folklores. For the Celts, they would appear as a warning or a symbol of transgressing a taboo, for example. And it appears in everything from Arthurian legends to the Chronicles of Narnia and Elder Scrolls Skyrim. And it's Harry Potter's Patronus, too, for Christ's sake. Much like how the associations of birds of prey and childbirth are commonly associated with steppe societies, but not exclusively, we should recognize that white stags are just cool and very well suited to mythology by their nature. In fact, white stags are literally real, with albino stags occurring about one in every 30,000 deer, and mostly white piebald deer appearing just one out of every thousand or so. While we can trace a certain telling of these legends across steppe cultures, there may just be something primordial or psychological about the deer version of a shiny Pokemon. Regardless, its prominence in today's Hungarian culture and national symbolism, sometimes with ethno-nationalist or extremely right-wing overtones, can't be overstated. There's a reason it was such a powerful theme in the only children's book about Hungarian conquest to win a Newbery Medal, after all. And in the intro, I talk about the Fourth World Scouting Jamboree, which took place in Hungary during the height of institutional tourism, and it featured a white stag and pagan Hungarian symbolism pretty prominently. That's just a teaser for what was to come regarding the relationship between Hungarian mythology, the Boy Scouts, Turinism, and interwar intrigue. Okay, so there's one last element of the Hungarian pre-Christian culture that I want to squeeze into this episode that's an essential part of the story, how Hunor and Mogor found love. The Maotis or Maotian marshes, if you look at a map of Europe and Asia, have historically been a sensible place along the Grand Eurasian steppe for nomadic peoples to settle down, but not quite as secure as the Hungarian plain fortified by mountains. And classically, the Sea of Azov, the part of the Black Sea partially cut off by the Crimean Peninsula, was once known as the Maotian Lake. With generally great water access and a coast to its south, but also so swampy it often checked the westward migration of nomads, the region has been home to the Meotians, believed to be the ancestors of modern Circassians, Abkhazians, and Abazines, though at one point the Meotians were thought to have been a Hindu colony too. Eventually, however, it would be the home of those Iranian-speaking Scythians, and people descended from the Scythians like Yazages and Alans. The lands were also home to the Hungarians at this point, and Kezai writes that they remained there for five years without leaving. Then, on the sixth year, they went out, and when by chance they discovered that the wives and children of the sons of Belar were camped in tents in a lonely place without their menfolk, they carried them off with all their belongings as fast as they could into the Meotis marshes. Two daughters of Dula, prince of the Alans, happened to be among the children who were seized. Hunor took one of them in marriage, and Mogor the other, and to these women all the Huns owe their origin. 
And as they stayed on in the marshes, they gradually grew into a very powerful people, and the land was not large enough to contain or to feed them. With this story of wife abduction, the Huns and Hungarians are tied to the Alans as well as one another, who, as I've mentioned before, spoke an Iranian language and can be thought of as remnants of that old Scythian culture. Interestingly, DNA from the burial sites of the conquering Magyars indicates that, yes, there was at least some relationship, genetically at least, between the earliest Magyars and the Alans, but this story also illuminates a pagan Hungarian cultural tradition as well. So, if you know your Central Asian culture, you may be aware of bride kidnapping, practiced in certain forms around the world, but somewhat infamously associated with Central Asia and sometimes the Caucasus. While bride kidnapping was strictly cracked down upon during the 20th century by many of these countries' communist governments, they have been re-embraced as a sort of cultural tradition, and in cases like Kyrgyzstan, for example, are on the rise in the 20th century. The estimates of Kyrgyz marriages that include at least some element of bride kidnapping range from as low as 40% of marriages to as high as 75 And while many are consensual and sort of a traditional form of elopement, many are non-consensual and include the rape of the women, with one study published in Central Asian Survey reporting that two-thirds are non-consensual. There are reports that in Azerbaijan, as well, abducted brides sometimes become the slaves of the families that kidnap them. And in North Caucasian republics, there have been ransoms, there have been numerous instances of death, Death. The worst videos you can find online of these kidnappings are not very palatable. Relevant NGOs and human rights organizations in the UN have criticized the institutional acceptance of such kidnappings in multiple countries, and many women's rights organizations in these places have been working to end the practice. Obviously, at their worst, they're terrible, and at their best, they're still pretty problematic, but they do vary across modern cultures, and certain traditions are more so a playful spin on the archaic practice, sometimes utilizing symbolic kerchiefs worn to represent the bride's consent, and sometimes with parties from the bride's family arranged to kidnap her back. In fact, some anthropologists believe the tradition of the honeymoon itself might have emerged from the period after the kidnapping, where the man lays low for a while while hunted by the bride's family. Bride kidnapping is also preserved in Hungarian wedding traditions, though I'll say it's in a much, much more symbolic and playful way. In what's known as menyasonurablash, literally bride kidnapping, male members of the wedding party will wait for the groom to get distracted on the day of, usually during a dance, and sometimes the bride's girlfriends will even intentionally distract him. It's then announced that the groom has failed to take care of his wife, and he has to perform certain tasks to redeem himself and get her back. These can include quite commonly drinking champagne from the bride's shoe, as well as reciting a poem or tongue twister about his love, performing some kind of stunt, or kneeling before his mother-in-law and praising her non-stop for a set period of time. You can find Hungarian wedding planning websites and magazines suggesting ideas for the bride kidnapping challenges and tips to pull off a successful one, as well as the history of the tradition and, indeed, at least a few mention Hunor and Mogor's kidnapping of the Allen princesses. While there have been some notable incidents of kidnapped brides experiencing some pretty bad injuries after getting dropped in the Hungarian case, these are, for the most part, on the most harmless end of the spectrum. This was certainly not always the case, though, as it was a real 
pagan tradition that early Hungarian kings tried to suppress. In fact, Saint King Istvan, or Stephen, the first Christian king of Hungary, passed a law during his reign that read, If any warrior by lewdness abducts a girl to be his wife without the consent of her parents, we decree that the girl should be returned to her parents, even if he did anything by force to her, and the abductor shall pay ten steers for the abduction, although he may afterwards have made peace with the girl's parents. If a poor man who is a commoner should attempt this, he shall compensate for the abduction with five steers. While condemned by the kings, Yenosuch writes that these abductions remained a part of Hungarian folk customs, even if only in a symbolic form in later times. Now, much like with the myth of the stag, Kezai was very likely familiar with the Hungarian folk customs here, but also comparing and contrasting with Gedeka and the story of the Huns, making connections as he went along. In his description of the Alan brides kidnapped by the Hun-slash-Hungarians, it bears close resemblance to the account of a kidnapping about the Huns from Jordan's Gattaca, emphasizing the Hunnic deer quest that Suzumenos had originally written about, and Jordanes has some very nasty things to say about the Huns in this section, too. He says, Of the Huns, this cruel tribe settled on the farther bank of the Maotic Swamp. They were fond of hunting and had no skill in any other art. After they had grown to a nation, they disturbed the peace of neighboring races by theft and rapine. At one time, while hunters of their tribe were, as usual, seeking for gain on the farthest edge of the Maotis, they saw a doe unexpectedly appear to their sight and enter the swamp, acting as guide of the way, now advancing and again standing still. The hunters followed and crossed on foot the Maotic swamp, which they had supposed was impassable as the sea. Presently, the unknown land of Scythia disclosed itself, and the doe disappeared. Now, in my opinion, the evil spirits from whom the Huns are descended did this from envy of the Scythians. And the Huns were now filled with admiration for the Scythian land. As they were quick of mind, they believed that this path, utterly unknown to any age of the past, had been divinely revealed to them. They returned to their tribe, told them what had happened, praised Scythia, and persuaded the people to hasten thither along the way they had found by the guidance of the doe. As many as they captured when they thus entered Scythia for the first time, they sacrificed to victory. The remainder they conquered and made subject to themselves. One of the biggest challenges of Parson Kezai's text are figuring out what he totally pulled from Western sources describing steppe cultures like the Huns, and what were steppe culture elements that existed in Hungary at the time. The fingerprints of Jordanes and other Roman and Greek authors are all over this work, and there's no Hungarian legend that doesn't get interpreted through that lens and sewn together with the Hunnic accounts. But there is reason to believe a lot of it was inspired by those existing Hungarian legends, and that that was at least the kernel of real Hungarian culture and mythology that Kezai was inserting inside the mechanism of Hun kinship, a narrative mechanism that despite all the scientific and historical analysis pointing out obvious errors in this kinship will certainly endure, I'd say, as long as the Hungarian culture and language does.
When the American contingent of the Boy Scouts arrived at Admiral Horthy's palace in August 1933, they received their jamboree patches, which collectors can still find on eBay today. The patches featured the white stag, and their enthusiastic Hungarian friends explained its meaning to them. Recorded today in the Scout Jamboree book, one day, many years ago, Hunor and Magor, the two sons of King Nimrod of the Orient, were out hunting with a number of their men. Suddenly, from a thicket, jumped the most beautiful deer they had ever seen. Immediately, they started in pursuit over mountainsides, through valleys and forests, across rivers. They followed the magnificent animal until, with darkness, they lost track of it. There was nothing for them to do except make camp right where they were and await the coming of morning. When they awoke the next morning, gorgeous sight greeted their eyes. In their wild ride, they had crossed the borders of their own country and had arrived in another of which they had never heard, a country richly endowed with good soil, bountiful forests, fruits, flowers, game, and fish. Hunor and Magyar, they decided that this was the land of their choice. They went back for their father's blessing and then returned with their wives to their new rich country. Through the ages, they prospered. The descendants of Hunor became the Huns and of Magor, the Magyars, who now form the Hungarian nation. Thank you for listening to another mega-long episode of the Turan Explorer podcast. I find it very funny that I originally anticipated spending, I don't know, like an episode each looking at these old chronicles, but now I've written more than 30,000 words about Shimon Kezai's Gesta and a bunch about Anonymous's too, and I'm just like eight pages into his document. I hope you understand, however, that these are really, really important symbols for Hungarian history and folklore. They're fascinating and can tell us so much about Hungarian history and also Hungarian interpretation of that history, and through their interpretation and appropriation can tell us a lot about the development of Turanism and nationalism in Hungary, too. As I move forward in Hungarian history and touch on the more modern Turanist stuff, the role of Nimrod, Hunor, Magor, the Stag, the Turul, Eneth, Emeshe, these will all play crucial roles. And I can't trust that the average listener who doesn't know about these basics of Hungarian culture will be familiar to any of it, unless they're, I guess, really into Boy Scout lore. That I can write all this and have hundreds of people listening to this podcast is really one of the biggest honors I've ever had in my life. So thank you to anyone who pressed play. And I appreciate people yelling at me on TikTok and Twitter to hurry up and put out a new episode. I, I hope this one is sufficiently meaty. We haven't even gotten to the big guy, the most important mythical father of the Hungarian people, Attila the Hun, yeah. Kezai's description of the deeds of the Huns are extremely interesting, and I can't wait to dive into them with you. If you like the show, follow me on social media, subscribe if you haven't already, maybe throw us some cash on Patreon to get me to make episodes quicker, check out Boss Moss's SoundCloud, rate and review the show, and tell your friends. But most importantly, greet me with a smile when I see you next time in Turan. 